My name is Maria Lewis and welcome to Josie and the Podcasts, a six-part limited podcast series about the 2001 cult classic Josie and the Pussycats, hosted by me, a best-selling author, journalist and screenwriter. And produced by me, film critic and podcaster Blake Howard behind shows like One Heat Minute, All the President's Minutes, Increment Vice, Contention and many more. Huge thanks to everyone who has sent us messages tweets, emails, tagged us in Facebook and Instagram posts after our first episode history and a bonus app, How Archie Broke the Comics Code. They were all about the unlikely path Josie and the Pussycats took as an Archie spin-off property and, you know, we got into the history and comics and pop culture and prejudice and how those things can intermingle in really interesting ways because before we get to where we're at, it's important to look at where we've come from and I was conscious of the fact that there wasn't a celebrity hook per se with those first two episodes, so the reception to them and the feedback has been, yeah, it's been so wonderful and so lovely, and I just wanted to take a moment up the top of the show to say thank you for that now before we get into all the new stuff. Absolutely, and thank you so much again from me too. And if you want to catch up on those two episodes, we highly recommend quickly pausing this show now, going back and listening to those, and then rejoining us here. Josie and the Podcast. Oh my God, you're back? Hi, welcome. Now, where were we? Oh, right, settle in. It's the late 90s. Josie, as a property, has endured largely thanks to the 70s Hanna-Barbera cartoon series playing in reruns and syndication for the past few decades. Archie Comics itself is hanging in there, but it's the 90s and it's adhering to the comics code and things are pretty chaste, pretty safe. But where the brand is having the most success is with spin-off character Sabrina the Teenage Witch and with her hit sitcom, which is pulling in 17 million viewers every Friday night. <sighs> at least 10 for the talking cat, at least. <laughs> the talking cat has a name, sir, and its name is Salem. Thank you. <laughs> oh, sorry. King S- of Sa- reaction has- gifts. Hashtag Salem invented YouTube. Go on. <laughs> he did. That character, Sabrina, not Salem, was created by Archie staffer Dan DiCarlo, who we mentioned earlier, and he was a bit of a badass. He created Josie and the Pussycats as well. So the success of one starts to increase the viability of the other. Whispers of a Josie and the Pussycats movie abound and the very, very early stages of development begin to shift into gear. Here's Tim Hanley. You've heard him before, comic book historian and author of several books, including Betty and Veronica, Riverdale's Leading Ladies. The main thing for Archie was that it was out of their hands. They sold the the idea to the studio. Um, what they hoped they would get was what they call like a Nickelodeon movie, so something that would appeal to kids and what they ended up with was uh, what they later termed an an MTV movie, something for an older crowd. I think it ended up being PG-13. And then this fascinating satire of the music industry at the time, which was great, but like not at all what Archie was looking to do with the property, but it was entirely out of their hands. That's not a dissimilar situation to Marvel during the same period of the 90s. A fellow comic book giant, they were in financial trouble and to stay afloat, they'd sold off the movie rights to some of their most famous characters like Spider-Man. That goes to Sony. The X-Men and Fantastic Four. Which both end up at the now non-existent 20th Century Fox. The Hulk smashes into Universal. 
And the Daywalker himself, Blade, he slashes over to New Line and becomes the first real theatrical success from Marvel comic book property after they had big flops in the 80s and early 90s with Captain America, Punisher with Dolph Lundgren and Howard the Duck and so on. The Marvel Cinematic Universe, aka the MCU as we recognise it today, started off with sort of the toys that were left in the box. Characters that not only weren't considered as popular and marketable as those ones I just mentioned, but they were the only ones that hadn't been sold off to other studios. They're iconic now, but like Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, they weren't considered viable. But when Kevin Feige was appointed head of Marvel Studios, their own film division, he'd learned a lot from working on Marvel properties with all those other studios and watched carefully about what did and didn't work. I interviewed Kevin Feige last year for something that's unrelated to this, but what was interesting was he said that the biggest lesson he learned was the studios didn't think the comic book origins of the characters were cool enough. So they were always trying to change them and move the X-Men out of their blue and yellow costumes into all black outfits that had them looking like unsure customers in a kink dungeon. Feige understood that audiences loved what they saw on the page and the key to big screen success was not fucking around with those core ingredients too much. All of this is a way to say that the Josie and the Pussycats movie being out of the publisher's hands in the late 90s when it started development wasn't abnormal. Archie's situation was the norm rather than the exception when it came to comic book properties being adapted for any screen, whether it was small or silver. There's another essential detail, which sadly isn't all that unusual either when it comes to the world of comic books and the artists and writers hired to create them. Here's Tim. When the Josie and the Pussycats movie was announced, Dan DiCarlo, who was the lead artist at Archie Comics at this time, had been for say upwards of 40 years at this point, um, decided, hey, I should maybe get some money for that because he created Josie. And so he filed a lawsuit um, that resulted in his swift firing from Archie Comics. Um, the lawsuit had merit. He had created Josie. Um, all of the Archie contracts were very, very strict in terms of this is work for hire. You don't own this. And he had signed several of them over the years. He had a much better case in like 1969 with the TV show. DiCarlo didn't know the TV show, the cartoon like existed until the day before it happened, I think. And if he had pursued a, a lawsuit, then he might've had a shot. He got advised that if you go after them, you're never going to draw a comic book again. No one will hire you. So he decided to stick with the regular job and keep on with the company and not pursue anything. Now, this bit this bit is a bit sad, full warning here, but it is a part of Josie and the Pussycat's journey, so it's important to talk about it, and it's important to talk about Dan DiCarlo. But like a big, supposedly at this stage, blockbuster movie, and after years of working there with like fair but not fair relative to his substantial output kind of compensation he decided to sue uh, he lost the case because of the contracts really there was just the re-upping of them again and again kind of screwed any of his chances for for any ownership of it and uh the credits uh goldwater's son richard took credit for part of it in that when 
DiCarlo brought Josie into Archie for the first time. He took it to Richard Goldwater first, who then took it to his dad. So like that 20-foot walk down the hall, got Goldwater credit on all the comics, which is sketchy as comic history tends to be. Uh, the lawsuit then resulted in counter lawsuits from Archie kind of hammering down other properties DiCarlo worked on to make sure he wouldn't get compensation for those either. And yeah, he got fired soon after and then like died the next year. It was all very sad and resulted in a massive drop in quality in the Archie comics because DiCarlo was excellent and fast and like come up through the crucible of 1950s and 1960s comics where you just churn out excellent art at a massive rate and then everyone that took over after was not Dan DiCarlo because there is no other Dan DiCarlo so it hurt Archie they could have really given him a bit of money given him the recognition he deserves they like erased Dan DiCarlo from their history for a while there's a a classic story where the girls Betty and Veronica go to like an art museum and they're talking about their favorite artists and Betty's like, my favorite artist is Dan DiCarlo. And they like make fun of her for liking comics. But they reprinted the story in a digest in the early 2000s, and they take out Dan DiCarlo. It's Betty's line is now, my favorite artist is the artist at Archie Comics. And so it was just this nasty campaign. It's only like a decade after he died that they kind of, and the new management that they kind of realized, oh, DiCarlo's good, and they've done like collections, and hopefully some money's gone to the family. Not enough, of course. But. As mentioned, this is not a unique situation to DiCarlo. This type of lawsuit is quite common, actually, as artists and creators try to fight for more compensation for the characters they created as the characters go on to various multimedia projects. Like, there are dozens of these, dozens upon dozens of these, and none of them end well, at least none that I know of. Is Marv Wolfman, creator of the character Blade, who sued as the first movie was coming out in 98 over very similar reasons to DiCarlo, basically. He lost. Staying with Marvel, Howard the Ducks creator Steve Gerber fought for creative control of the character around the same time as that ill-fated movie was in development, but that dispute was kept hush-hush for years after the fact. There's Gary Friedrich for Ghost Rider, James Warren for Vampirella, Alan Moore with Watch and V for Vendetta. After Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies were a colossal hit, Stan Lee sued Marvel in 2002 for profits and they settled, while Jack Kirby and Marvel's issues were headed to the Supreme Court. Perhaps the two most famous battles, however, relate to two of the most famous comic book characters. notice a change to the credits of DC properties that feature Batman in recent years, if you've been paying attention. The character of Batman, as created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. The addition of Bill's name is new and comes after years and years of legal battles to get recognition for the man who co-created some of the most integral aspects of the Cape Crusader, and many of the supporting characters and rogues gallery, and went largely unrecognised for decades. Then there's the big guy. Superman and the fight for not only copyright but royalties and a myriad of other factors for creators Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster who fought for decades, passed away and whose fight is continuing through their surviving family members. I'm glossing over a lot of the specifics here because each of these legal battles individually is dense like 
altogether, it's hella dense. But in Siegel and Schuster's case, it's over 70 years worth of collated court cases and appeals. And you know, if you Google this, the Wikipedia page alone is longer than one of my novels. What makes the Josie and the Pussycats example sadder is all of this goes down in the last decade of Dan DeCarlo's life. His two sons that he'd had with his wife, the real-life inspiration for Josie, Josie DiCarlo, had passed away from cancer a few years earlier. He had support from legendary comic book figures like Paul Dini, who really identified with his struggle and was a close friend. But when DiCarlo passed away in December 2001 at 85, he wasn't as acknowledged, celebrated and respected as he should have been. And on that dark note, Josie and the Podcasts will be right back. From Dick Grayson's ass to Wonder Woman, Nicola Scott really is that witch. The Australian comic book artist behind some of your favourite moments on the page has a whole online store full of treats. Whether that's special editions of her best-selling graphic novel Black Magic with Greg Rucker or original art from the pages of Superman or Birds of Prey, one of my personal faves, there's something for every comic book collector or pop culture connoisseur. Check out her website, www.nicolascottart.com for more info. It's also in our show notes. Or find her on the socials under Nicola Scott Art on Twitter and Insta. First, feminist werewolves, then mermen, witches, mediums who can control the dead, and now banshees. From the best-selling author of Who's Afraid, Who's Afraid 2, It Came From the Deep, comes The Wailing Woman, the latest book by the goddamn host of this show, Maria Lewis. The fifth novel in her shared supernatural universe, I like to call the MLCU. It follows teenage banshee Sadie Burke as she navigates the paranormal world of Sydney, Australia. Coming off the back of her win for the best fantasy novel at the 2019 Aurealis Awards for The Witch Who Caught a Death, The Wailing Woman is available in physical bookstores, online and ebook right now. It's also just been shortlisted for the 2020 Aurealis Award for best fantasy novel and the link is in our show notes. And it slaps. Now, just like another comic book property, The Hulk, Josie and the Pussycats is in development at Universal Pictures when shit really starts to move. There's no script, but as an entity, it's floating around and two of the people it floats towards are writer, directors, Deborah Kaplan and Harry Elfon. Now, they work together as a creative unit. They're a package. And even though they're in their early 20s in Hollywood, they've got that BDE, that big dick energy. And I guess the best representation of that visually is this photo of them looking like absolute spunk rats where Deb is wearing this black shirt with her name written in white font in the middle and she's got her arm casually draped over (laughs) around Harry's shoulder and he's wearing a white shirt with his name on it in black font. So posing together, it says... Deb Harry and it's cool as shit. The picture is in the written version of this episode and the link to that is in our show notes if you want to take a look or if you know someone who's hearing impaired and would enjoy a written version of this episode. Now in terms of favorite cinematic years 1996 would be my pick because it has a cluster of some of my favorite movies of all time coming out that year like Scream, Scream, The Craft, Not as as if it's a book. <laughs> movies that don't star Nev Campbell, like The Phantom, which was the first big blockbuster shot in Australia, Twister. Jack the, Debon. <laughs> the 
Birdcage, Independence Day, Matilda, Fargo, Frighteners, First Wives Club, Demet Walking, Happy Gilmore. Too good for your hole. 12 Monkeys, Fear, Fly Away Home, The Ghost in the Darkness, Long Kiss Goodnight, Set It Off. Like the list goes on and on and on. And one of those movies was very clever and kind of underrated now. It's called A Very Brady Sequel. The Brady Bunch movie had come out in 1995 and was a very funny, very meta, very satirical update on the classic TV show, and it had become a surprise hit. Its sequel was just as good. Like, in terms of very witty modern updates of staple television shows, the Brady Bunch movies had to walk so the 21 Jump Street movies could run. Deborah Kaplan and Harry Elfont's first professional credit is on a very Brady sequel in 1996. They come up with the story and they write the screenplay. And if you've seen that movie, you can get a real taste for how biting their sense of humor is and their unique voice as a duo. But the place where you really hear that voice is on their directorial debut. You may have heard of it. It's a little film called Can't Hardly Wait. Now, Can't Hardly Wait drops in 1998 and it stars Jennifer Love Hewitt right in the middle of her ascent to 90s It Girl. This is a year after I know what you did last summer, the same year as I still know what you did last summer, and bang smack in the middle of her run on a television show that was making stars of everyone who was in it, including Nev Campbell. Party of Fire for all you 90s heads out there. Jennifer Love Hewitt's character Sarah Reeves ended up getting her own short-lived spin-off, but that's for another podcast. And the plot of Can't Hardly Wait, for those who haven't seen it, shame on you, centers around the final party for a group of high school seniors who have just graduated. It's the last shindig before everyone goes their separate ways, and it deals with a lot of archetype characters of high school movies. The popular girl, the nerd, the jock, the wigger, the rebel, the goth. It was written and directed by Deb and Harry, getting greenlit by Columbia in 1997 after a few other teen-centric films hit and hit big, like Scream. Even more so than a very Brady sequel, it highlights all the things they're good at as filmmakers. Pace, characters, comedy, and an ear for incorporating music that not only connects with the movie, but connects with viewers. The Can't Hardly Wait soundtrack was a moderate success on the Billboard album charts and had Missy Elliott, Third Eye Blind, Busta Rhymes, Blink-182, and The Replacement, whose song Can't Hardly Wait is where the film gets its title. It also featured a cover by Smash Mouth, which becomes a radio mainstay and the video clip starred Jennifer Love Hewitt as well. Yeah, 
That song is going to be in your head for the rest of the week now. And I'm only mildly sorry. Now, Can't Hardly Wait did okay with critics, but more importantly for that stage of their career, Deb and Harry's movie opened strong at the box office. By the end of its theatrical run, it had grossed more than double its $10 million budget and developed a healthy following that would trot over to the home entertainment market as well. What was integral, though, was the crew. The movie's credited with having a lot of before-they-were-famous famous people in it, and among them would be a lot of Josie and the Pussycats alumni, including all four members of parody boy band Du Jour. Seth Green, Donald Faison, Brecken Meyer, and Alexander Martin all appeared and Can't Hardly Wait. So that movie makes Deb and Harry prime candidates for Josie, and they eventually come on board by... Well, actually, you know what? I'm going to let them tell you. Deborah Kathleen, writer, director. Harry Elfont, other writer, director. We got it! We got it! Yeah, you really can't do this podcast without speaking to several key people, and there's few people keyer than Deb and Harry. So after months of trying to reach them, we finally get in contact and set a time to meet up in LA while I'm over there for work and after they've finished up production on the latest season of their award-winning show, Liza On Demand. You may remember Forrest Satchel from episode one, who was an expert on the Josie and the Pussycats animated series, plural. Hi, Forrest Satchel, and I'm a Josie and the Pussycats fanatic. I bring Forrest with me to Studio City because he's L.A. born and bred. And in case I've been conned by Deb and Harry impersonators, Forrest is my buffer so I don't get bundled up into a van and wake up in a bathtub full of ice with my kidney missing. But it's the real Deb and Harry and my kidney stays where it is. And they bring somebody else too. Hi, I'm Rachel Lee Cook and you're listening to Josie and the Podcats. Uh, yeah, okay. So I've been a journalist for the past 16 years. I specialize in pop culture and doing deep dives with filmmakers, actors, DOPs, you name it. And I'm doing my best to keep my shit together. But this is one of the professional highlights of my life. So we go to a Jewish diner, grab a corner booth and get into the nitty gritty. So excuse the Atmos the occasional munching of fries on my behalf, and enjoy the specifics of how Josie and the Pussycats ended up on their metaphorical desk post Can't Hardly Wait. Is it Mar- I think it was Marty. He wasn't even our agent. He wasn't? I feel, was like, I feel like we He's first heard about it. Because he didn't have children <laughs> come out of his body. So go ahead. I think we first heard about it from a guy who wasn't even our agent. Uh, who said they're doing this Josie and the Pussycats movie at uh, Universal. And we laughed and said, "Oh, that's that sounds really silly. No thanks." Uh, and then it came up, it came around again a little later, maybe through the executive on the project, who was uh, then Ali Brecker, uh, the sadly late Ali Brecker, um, and uh, she told us about it. And we again said, "Haha, that sounds really silly. No thanks." And they said, "You can do whatever you want. Like re- we really want to kind of just use the title." Uh, and it's when we realized, wait, they're telling us we can make a musical. Like, it just wasn't, nobody was making musicals at the time. So the idea that we could make a studio-backed musical, that suddenly became appealing. So then we started seriously thinking about, okay, what will we do? Uh, and we may have pitched a Josie and the Pussycats in Outer Space version first. Uh, and then realized, no, we don't want to do that. And then we came up with the whole you know, brainwashing people through pop music. We just kind of looked around at what was going on in music and it felt like everything was getting, you know, being kind of Gen Xers and coming of age, kind of being kind of 90s mentality. Just looking at what happened for music 
when we were in our 20s to music as we were kind of heading into our 30s. So the Josie and the Pussycats in Outer Space movie? We didn't get that live-action space opera, which in hindsight I think was probably for the best given that what we did get was so good and so specific to the period. Now, Deb and Harry were aware of Archie Comics as a property, but they weren't exactly what you would call diehards. I was a big Archie collector. Yeah. And I still have my Archie comics from when I was little. I mean, they're tattered, they're useless, but I have them. Um, I just knew it as the offshoot to, oh, thanks. I just knew it as the offshoot to, uh, from Archie. I didn't really, I probably only had like one or two actual Josie comics where I had all the Archies. So I knew them a little bit. Mm. And from the cartoon, obviously, because the cartoon was on when we were children. Yeah, I knew that, and that, which is why Outer Space kind of came to me first, because that was the second season of the Saturday morning cartoon was Josie's Outer, Outer Space. Space. So it felt like, why not do that? Now, once they signed on and their non-space pitch was given the thumbs up, they started working on the script. And in Harry's words, they were pretty quick back then. Neither of them had kids and they put it together in about four months. And that core idea of Josie and the Pussycats as a movie being this Trojan horse to talk about the then state of the music industry and capitalism it developed pretty organically, according to Harry. I think the first idea was, oh, wouldn't it be funny if we say that all the music that seems so kind of bland and generic, and again, at the same time, we liked a lot of that music, but it seemed comparatively very bland and generic. It was boy band era, heavy, yeah. heavy. Yeah, everybody's loving that because they're being brainwashed to love it. And then I think everything grew from there. Then we realized, okay, why are they brainwashing people? Well, what are they after? And then we thought, well, what if they're selling things? And then the whole kind of satire of consumerism and all of pop culture and capitalism <laughs> came from that. We showed it to a couple producers that we had relationships with that we kind of really respected and they sort of, uh, you know, maybe you listen at the time, maybe you don't, but the common thread was, why? I don't, I don't get it, why are you doing this? And to us, like, it seemed very clear, like, I guess, again, having sort of come out of college during grunge, and suddenly seeing everything get sort of sanitized and like people in matching outfits, it felt weird. It felt like something nefarious was going on, even if it wasn't. You know, it felt like we were being fed something we didn't want and people were like, I don't want it. That earlier point about Deb and Harry's film Can't Hardly Wait being crucial to not only establishing them as a creative duo, but some of those key relationships, well, it was also crucial in another way, introducing Deb, Harry, and the woman who would become Josie herself, Rachel Lee Cook. I, it's, I wish it was a more colorful story. I just remember getting sent the script and really liking it. And I had met Deb and Harry when they were doing I Can't Hardly Wait, which is a movie that I had really wanted to book, but didn't. And, you know, it happens. I'm very used to it at this point. Wait so, a second. You auditioned for Can't Hardly Wait? You don't remember this? Do you remember this? Well, obviously, that's why I didn't get it, because <laughs> she was very young. <laughs> You were very young. What part did you audition? I literally don't remember this. Um, Denise. Was that Denise or Amanda? That Lauren Ambrose's part? No. Love Hewitt's part? Yeah. Really? Yeah. But she was already pretty much confirmed. From Maybe that's part. why I don't. Yeah, because I don't remember seeing a lot of people for that part. Because it was yeah. kind of an offer to her. But I do remember meeting you guys because you were the first striking team I had ever met. And you were so weirdly young. So I was like, this is just strange all around. We were all but, weirdly um, young then. Yeah. There was, <laughs> but, but you it were was super cool. young then. Yeah. Because yeah. what year were like you casting that? 97? Yeah. I was 16, 17. That's crazy. Yeah. But um, an excellent movie. So when I read the script and it was as good as it was, it was 
you know, an easy decision to decide to go in and sit down and have a chat. And I think it did definitely cross my mind, like, this is a very specific point of view. It's, it's a big swing. It could kind of go either way. It's so obvious that Rachel genuinely loves Josie and the Pussycats. Like, it's not spin. It's authentic. And we'll get to more of the reasons behind that in later episodes. Yet in the years that had passed since she'd first auditioned for Can't Hardly Wait as a 16, 17-year-old, Rachel had grown up and her capital had grown with her, making her debut in the Babysitter's Club movie in 1995, which has a very special place in my heart. By the time Josie and the Pussycats was moving along in earnest in the year 2000, Rachel had a shit ton of experience and some serious hits. There was a period flick, The Hairy Bird with Kirsten Dunst in 98, a run on Dawson's Creek, movies, Get Carter and Antitrust, and of course, The Big Kahuna. Lainey Boggs and She's All That with Freddie Prince Jr. That movie was a moment, still is, and it made stars of the both of them. So when Deb and Harry had that Josie and the Pussycat script ready to go, they knew who they wanted for it. We're really right with people we had in mind. No, I got it. Go on. Um, so it was really once the script was done, it's like, okay, who, who would be ideal? Um, and Rachel was pretty easy. I mean, it was just kind of suggested that we were maybe mm. negotiating with you or something because people came in on audition for Josie. But, but we that were... was while we were waiting for her to say yes. Well, maybe like, that's what it was. Okay. The studios are saying they could get you and we're like, what if we don't get her? So we did have, there were some people who came in. The majority of the people came in came in for um, Val. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't even remember so reading people... Melodies. Yeah. American Pie had come out Tara. and they were a universal, right. same studio, they wanted Tara. Which, by the way, I think she's perfect. Mm-hmm. You're right. We saw the most. We saw Val's. We saw a ton of Alexandra's. Mm-hmm. And, and a bunch of Wyatt's. And a bunch of uh, and Alan M's. I'm sure. There were a lot of good Val's. I mean, I'm sorry, I was obviously the best, but I didn't even meet her. We just heard that she had gotten the part. Oh, Rosario. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because she was in New York at the time. Yeah, we exactly. met her at a hotel in New York. Rachel, of course, is referring to Rosario Dawson, who ends up landing the part of Valerie, which we know from the first Josie in the Podcast episodes is historic for the ground it breaks in terms of representation in television and comics. The final trio for the film ends up being Rachel Lee Cook as Josie, Tara Reid as Melody, and Rosario as Valerie. Rachel and Tara are pretty much logs, but that role of Valerie is like this fascinating sliding doors moment in a dozen different ways. There's casting what ifs, and then there's Aaliyah, who auditioned for the part and obviously was a generational talent in terms of music with heads like Try Again. Yet she was also crossing over into film and auditioned off the back of Romeo Must Die, which she starred in alongside Jet Li and became a cult classic in its own right. She only appeared in two films, the other being Queen of the Damned, before she was killed in a plane crash along with seven others in 2001. Someone else who auditioned for Valerie was one of the greatest female MCs of all time, Lisa 
Left Eye Lopez, who was also hugely famous for her role in a globally successful all-girl trio, TLC. Lopez actually got pretty close too and Josie and the Pussycats would have been her feature film debut. Tragically, she too was killed only a few years later at the age of 30 following a car accident. Now, those two names alone are legendary, but there was somebody else too. And you'll have to excuse my audible shriek. And Beyonce audition. <laughs> what? Yeah, wait, hold on. I still have it on my phone because I, I found it when I cleaned up my garage and I tweeted it. But She was so quiet and sweet. Beyonce? Yeah. There's the session sheet. Oh my God. Wild. Yeah, she sat on the floor. Mm-hmm. She kind of just like cuddled up on the floor and did the scene and was super, super quiet. And we thought, all right, well, I guess she's not that comfortable. We weren't gonna push her. We weren't gonna like gonna kind of grind her. And be like, okay, more, give us more Beyonce Knowles. Um, but uh, I think she was not Sasha Fierce yet. Yeah, she's super, super quiet. Um, and then in left eye, we got. I think you may have. Did you read with her? Because mm-hmm. we called her back. Mm-hmm. And I remember her. She was cool. super into it. Yeah. Um, and really, really kind of fired up. Yeah. But Regina um, was also amazing. Regina yeah. Yes. Amazing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was great. The the thing with left eye was it was ultimately the kind of it's ter- the comedy chops really. Like we weren't quite sure. Like, look, we're making a comedy. Like she's super interesting and musically be really interesting, but is it gonna be funny? And that's where we kind of got cold feet with her. I got and it. Regina was awesome. Mm-hmm. And there was something about when we met Rosario in New York. She just had this, she had that thing that Rosario has. And we thought, oh, yeah. she's, this is Val. It was perfect. Aaliyah, Lisa Left Eye Lopez, Beyonce, and now Academy Award winner Regina King. That's a hell of a lineup. And it's testament to how good Rosario is that she was able to become the Valerie we all know and love. Coming up on the next episode of Josie and the Podcats production, Deborah Kaplan and Harry Elfon are the writer-directors. The project is officially greenlit and is going at Universal. And the Pussycats have been found, Rachel, Tara, and Rosario. Now cameras start rolling in Vancouver. Be sure to subscribe to this show so you're the first to know about all the upcoming episodes and some bonus apps, including one this week about the fashion of Josie and the Pussycats. If you like this, du jour means chuck us a rating and review to help other people find the show as well. This episode of Josie and the Podcats was researched, written and presented by me, Maria Lewis. And produced by me, Blake Howard. Our podcast artwork was done by the awesome Amy Reid, who you can find on Instagram at at ai.me.me or via email at amyaimee.read0310 at gmail.com. And our jerkin theme is courtesy of Amanda Wilkinson from the band Bossy Love and Edwin Organ. Bossy Love's brand new album, Me Plus You, is out now. And if you know someone who's hearing impaired who would enjoy this show, written versions of every episode, including the bonus apps, are available online at Graffiti with Punctuation. The link is in our show notes. And until next time, who's a rock star?
Lucy in the podcast.